This podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. conversation which is why i wanted to share it again that was obvious because yeah you you yeah <laughs> oh yeah i was you know okay well hey let's say welcome hey welcome to another episode of 1980s now a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence today my name is will and this is so exciting even even though we're still in the month of vacation on july join me <laughs> as she usually does but hasn't for the last couple of weeks is my friend and my co-host cat hey cat I will. Hi. It, just, it just occurs to me. I've been doing this even though you and John have been on vacation. Right. And I've been on vacation. Right. So for you, it might be weird to, to have this conversation a few weeks after we've last recorded. It feels really strange. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. It feels like forever. Now you, you just Lots ha- happened. You just had a whirlwind <laughs> trip where you were in London seeing Duran Duran. I feel like we should save that for when John's around, maybe when we get back in August. Yeah, I could bore him with talking about the concert as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, you and I have personally spoken about it, but you know, yes. you may want to share some anecdotes there. Absolutely. Hey. I'll keep it a secret. So even though we're on vacation, uh, Kat is joining me because I wanted to, we wanted to chat about the interview that we're going to be playing for you. And all this month we've been playing interviews that we recorded previously on the show, but you may have missed and are really worth mm-hmm. a listen to. Look, there's dozens and dozens of interviews with celebrities and other contemporary artists and mm-hmm. academics uh, mm-hmm. all sorts of interesting folks. You can find that on our website, 1980s. Now there's a whole little guide there actually, where you can find it by topic or personality, what you want to listen to. Yep. So we've only got a few weeks to highlight some, but this, uh, today we're going to be playing for you our, our uh, interview with author and journalist Hadley Freeman. Mm-hmm. As I was just mentioning to you, I was dying to talk to Hadley because, well, she's written <laughs> a number of articles uh, for the Guardian that touched mm-hmm. upon 80s, you know, pop culture in, mm-hmm. and in smart ways, not in the goofy ways that, you know, we often mm-hmm. do, but she also wrote a book. Oh, well, she's, I think she's written more than one. She's written more than one book, but the book that mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to her about, and we do, is called Life Moves Pretty Fast, The Lessons yeah. We Learned from 80s Movies and Why We Don't Learn Them from Movies Anymore. Ah, oh, uh, that's right. <laughs> and so we touch base on a number of different uh, favorite films, and she, we talk about the things that uh, were important life lessons out of those films. And in her book, she uses uh, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Ghostbusters, Top Gun, mm-hmm. Batman, Eddie Murphy movies. To, to make these points. Yeah. You know, a long time ago, we spoke with this uh, journalist who wrote a piece about controversial movies in the 80s. And I think he talked about mm-hmm. how Peter Venkman is an awful person. Right. The character of <laughs> Peter Venkman from Ghostbusters is an awful mm-hmm. human being that Dina should not be attracted to. Oh, you look like you're disagreeing. He, he's hard to pin down, yeah. that Peter Venkman, right? Like no. he's, I, there is something um, appealing about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's, he's perhaps not the most upstanding citizen mm. <laughs> that one could encounter, but go ahead. Yeah, Dana, Dana makes it, yeah. Dana says something about what you look like. You're like a used car salesman or something. <laughs> um, but surprisingly, Hadley <laughs> says the lesson she learns from Ghostbusters is, and I'm quoting from her mm-hmm. book in this chapter, uh, how to be a man that um, uh, right. Peter Venkman was an example of how to be a man. And she explains why. So the opposite of this other author who said, you know, mm-hmm. Peter Venkman's mm-hmm. not a good example. Of, he, he, and I remember he, what he said was, you wouldn't want Peter Venkman dating any woman that you knew in your life, your daughter, a friend, you would be like, <laughs> stay away from this guy. 
Right. <laughs> but Hadley says no, and that's I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. You didn't get mm-hmm. to join us on this episode. I think actually I no. just spoke with Hadley. I had the pleasure of speaking to her by myself. Yes. Are there any lessons from 80s films that you uh, learned? Yes. After much thought, okay. I was able to, <laughs> to pin a couple of things down. And I would say my lessons really focused on relationships. Okay. Back when we spoke with our friends from the, uh, as the beat and the beat goes on podcast. Sure. Yeah. Jackie, we, we talked yep. about, yeah, the, the message of be yourself, how mm. important that is. And there were many portrayals of that in eighties movies, of course, um, like in Say Anything or pretty much in any John Hughes film <laughs> mm-hmm. or even something like Footloose. I, you know, I feel like, you know, we can find that. But I would say it took me a really long time for that to sink in, like well past the 80s, that that message that it's you should be yourself and it's mm. OK to be yourself. I, okay. I didn't really know how. I feel like it took me a long time. Um, it's interesting. And, Is there, are you going to oh, make a ahead. different point now? Well, I was going to say... Um, for me personally, it, it ends up as hope. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's, there's a connection okay. be, for me between like being yourself yeah. and hope that I could eventually be appealing or attractive to someone like anyone else, you know? Hmm. Um, and I kind of clung to that message. Once that you're yourself, that someone will love you for your yes. being yourself. So I, I feel like that's something that was working in the background, yeah. you know, that I, you know, wasn't conscious of at the time. This, of course, reminds um, me of yeah. our, what, tried to, tried to uh, dobbler and got duckied uh, yes, thing. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Example of being yourself <laughs> and it doesn't go your way. But right. I've got to say, because I first mm-hmm. met you in 1989, I'm yes. going to guess. Yes. You seem like yourself. Uh, <laughs> I was starting. I think okay. I was really just, just getting started there. Um, and I, I guess I, I, and look, not, not knowing you obviously well in 1989, so we just met, what yeah. I could say is you seem very genuine and authentic and comfortable in your skin. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So if you were putting it on, I don't, I don't know. Well, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say that I was necessarily, but it was at that point in time, just so excited to be in that environment that we were mm-hmm. in where, where we met in college that that it was, it was probably an illusion, you know, that I, if I seemed, uh, you know, any of those things, it was just because I was so happy hmm. and, and I felt like, um, felt like I was on a fresh playing field. That mm-hmm. was really nice to be with, uh, a fresh group of people. And, and maybe there was a little bit of, um, well, they don't know me from when I was younger and I don't right. think I was any, anybody to not know mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was younger, but, it just felt like a chance to um, start fresh, you know, right. to start again and, and try and build something that I didn't have before. I was pretty excited about that. That was cool in college. <laughs> You're right. You have to, provided no one followed you from high school. I don't think I had any <laughs> friends from high school and college. So there. No, I, I didn't. I didn't. It was, well, there was one person I knew in high school, but I think she came later. I don't think she was there our freshman year. That's true for me too. Hmm. Somebody transferred in, yeah. um, I believe when we were juniors Yeah, and it was a little strange and it was somebody that um, he, he probably was wondering what happened to her. She's completely different yeah. <laughs> from, right. because in, in high school I was more shy and reserved and I completely wasn't anymore in, I re- in college. I remember you were telling us all your nickname was Wildcat and we should call you Wildcat. And I was like, no, okay. <laughs> 
So maybe, yeah, that guy was like, who's Wildcat? Wildcat. No, no, did I make that up? Maybe I made that up. I think you did. No. I think so many movies in the 80s also had a kind of triumphant feel to them. Mm-hmm. Like there's a trust that everything's going to work out oh, in the yeah. end. Oh, yeah. I think you're yeah. right. In the 70s, yeah. you know, we talked about this before. They had auteur mm-hmm. sort of movies where... Mm-hmm. Didn't necessarily that was going to happen. Didn't have to have a happy yeah. ending. You're right. right. 80s, maybe that's even where mm-hmm. it became sort of a commercial to, you know, if you want to have a success, you had to have that quote Hollywood ending. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think that stuck with me too. That you expected, you had, it gave you an optimistic outlook on your own life. Things will always so. sort of work out by the third act, end of the third act, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. I would say hmm. an overall message that, that I got was um, that, yeah, like hope and optimism seem to be hallmarks, you know, of the right. of the the movies that I was watching, and I do believe I picked up on that. That was definitely uh, something that that I pulled out of them anyway. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. It's funny yeah. you say that. Like I always certainly write when I saw films, I felt a certain comfort in like we know mm-hmm. the protagonists aren't going to get killed off. We know this is all right. going to wrap up. In the nineties, yeah. they started you know sort of turning those things on the ear. But in my real life, I never felt that way. <laughs> I've only started to feel like that in the last 10 years, I think. Maybe the last five years thanks to medication. <laughs> okay. True. It's okay. Being Everyone serious. has their process. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I wish I had long. learned it in 1980s film. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You talk about like, you first started off talking about being yourself, you know, learning that in the 80s and I brought up college and I think, yes, you know, yes. my impression of you in college was so that you were this sort of shining light, you know, always Aww. so optimistic. Just how you're describing your, your perspective. It's, it was true then, you know. Seemed always so happy and upbeat and optimistic, can-do attitude. And I think if we weren't friends early on, it probably was because I know, thinking about how I was or am, I think mm-hmm. she's not going to like me. I mean, I'm just always like, I, I don't see things like that yet. Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah, know yeah. it would yeah. take me another 30 years and then I'd be on drugs. That would help. <laughs> prescription. Prescription. Yeah, drugs. But- I'm sure if anything, it was like, I know I had that attitude. It's like, look, this person's not going to dig my perspective or how I am because I don't know that I can, you know, I'm like, I'd be like a gray cloud floating over to you. And I didn't have the pleasure or honor of knowing you very well back then, but, and I know I've told you this before, I was always in awe of you (laughs) on the stage. Oh, 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 on stage. Okay. In the dorms. I was in awe of you in the, up on the third floor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, you spying on me? Yes. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to say that. Dude, yeah. I cut your hair. Yes. It's, yes. Wait, was I asleep? I was asleep though, cat. I need that hair back, by the way. I was making voodoo dolls. Yes. But I, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't know you as a person, but you, you were awe inspiring. So you know, that, that it's something I've, I've definitely, uh, carried with me for all this oh, time. That's very sweet. Yeah. To be inspired maybe, by you. Maybe yeah. one of my characters would have gotten along with you. We would have been friends. <laughs> Not real me. You would have liked me. No. Okay. Yes, I, don't I know. You would have liked me just fine. All right. Yeah. I would have liked you all just right. fine. <laughs> all right. I think that's good. Okay. Are we good? Yep. Okay. Hey, okay. Well, hey, speaking of lessons, those were all great lessons, Kat. Thank you for sharing. I'm glad we did this because, you know, like I said, you weren't able to, you weren't with us yet, actually, when we did this episode. So we wouldn't, we couldn't have this conversation, but I'm glad we did. Yeah. So look, in a moment, we're going to be right back with many more life lessons learned from 1980s films when we are joined by, I say joined, because we're going to be playing for you or replaying Mm -hmm. 
And I'm guessing this is new to you. Our interview with author and journalist Hadley Freeman. Our guest today is a columnist for The Guardian newspaper in the UK. A prolific writer, her work has also appeared in numerous other publications, including Vogue US and UK, New York Magazine, and Harper's Bazaar. And our guest is also an author, having penned books including The Meaning of Sunglasses and Be Awesome. Most importantly, our guest's work often includes in-depth analyses or sly references to 1980s films. There's no better example of her expert knowledge of 1980s movies than her 2015 book, Life Moves Pretty Fast. Please welcome to the show, Hadley Freeman. Hey, Hadley. Hi, Will. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining. Uh, first thing I want to tell you, it strikes me that your name, it seems like a name straight out of, out of an 80s film. You know, it's <laughs> this is the protagonist of some John Hughes film, maybe... Uh, we, we've had other guests on who sound like villains uh, from 80s films. Ooh, that's an interesting one. Who sounds like a villain? I like that. <laughs> well, we had a guest on who was a statistician who helped us determine whether 1980s had the most one-hit wonders, and he, he looked at the math ah. of the, the, the data. His name is Todd Kerpelman. Oh, that is a good name. That sounds like a principal in a John it's, Hughes Yes, movie. that's what we thought, too. <laughs> or he's racing a yacht in a regatta against the, you know... Whatever. But it's true. John Hughes did really like unusual names like Sloan, Ferris, Bender, et cetera, et cetera. So Hadley does kind of fit in there. Yes. And now you make me think I should probably do a whole other study as to the impact John Hughes films had on babies' names in following years. You know, how many Sloans yeah, yeah, and yeah. Ferrises have we gotten since then? <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you because every time I, you know, Googled something about some topic I was researching for the show, your name came up because you already wrote something about it, which is, oh, no. you know, that's fantastic. You know, uh, when we're trying to, on our show, prove objectively that the 1980s was the best decade for pop culture, we'll fight your decade. <laughs> and the work that you've done, you've done a lot of the heavy lifting, you know, the research, okay. including your book, uh, Life Moves Pretty Fast. And anybody listening to this show know where that knows where that quote comes from. I won't, I don't have to mention it, but um, the lessons we learned from 80s movies and um, like it suggests, there's a number of different lessons that you, you, you go into, uh, including uh, true love isn't just about the kissing parts, how to be a man, women are interesting, things that you hope we had learned just from growing up in the 80s, but you, you point out we did and many oftentimes in, in the films that we loved. Just as a threshold thing, you know, you talk about this 30 year rule. Uh, can we, can you explain a little bit uh, about what do you mean by that? So I have this theory that pop culture, when it's, you know, when it's happening, so the pop music that's in the charts now, the movies that are in the cinemas now, tends to be denigrated by the mm. grown-ups, the older people who write for newspapers and, you know, write opinion pieces and uh, do snotty jobs like I do. <laughs> um, because that, because pop culture is not aimed at 40-somethings or whatever, 50-somethings. It's aimed for kids. So it takes 30 years for those kids to then grow up and have those snotty jobs. And they can then say, actually, it was the pop culture from (laughs) our youth that was great. So that's why like you and I, Will, we're now Mm. saying it was our youth that was great. Our pop culture was great. Because obviously what you grow up with is what seems both the norm and the best, because it's so exciting when you first encounter stuff as a kid. 
Having said all that, I really do maintain 80s movies are the greatest decade of movies. You're on the right show here. Uh, yeah, we, we've, um, I think I've mentioned on prior episodes, some neuroscientists, you know, suggest or determine that there's, I think there's two points when we're most susceptible to sort of brain development and uh, absorbing information or just developing our personalities. One's really young and one is in our like late teens, you know, oh, which right. they said accounts for in part how much teenagers sleep because of all the sort of, you know, brain. <laughs> that's what my, that's what my daughter tells me anyway. I, I don't know if it's I true. like that. I like that. Um, <laughs> but I agree with you. Aside from nostalgia, I think, as you've proven again in your book and many articles, that there's an objective angle to be made. Uh, and mm-hmm. one of the ways you cover this in your book is by distinguishing how movies were made then or the business of movie making as compared to today and how that ultimately plays into the, what would you say, quality of movies or the messages? Yeah. Could you touch on those, the three factors? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the really big things is in the eighties, a movie would make 80% of its takings from domestic market. So in the U S and 20% from the foreign market. And now that's really reversed. It's 80% overseas market, uh, 20% domestic. And on the one hand, you think, okay, that's cool. Like Hollywood is now aware that countries outside of America exist. Yay. The <laughs> downside of that though, is it means they don't spend that much time on script because everything's going to be translated. What they want is stuff that appeals universally. That means special effects and uh, you know guns and shootings and chases, which is why you have things like the Marvel movies now and why the Mission Impossible franchise is just this never ending cash cow for Hollywood studios. Um, and you don't have specificity. And I really think specificity is such a big thing in 80s movies. So whether it's about the Illinois or Chicago suburbs, I should say, of the John Hughes movies, um, whether it's about the real New Yorkiness, for example, of When Harry Met Sally um, and all the New York references in that film, um, whether it's even about weird things like the farm crisis of the 80s, which is kind of what Field of Dreams is all about. And when the farms out in the Midwest were really suffering, you know, they could then make this movie about this Iowa guy who had a farm and is going out of business. I mean, you would think now they would say that won't play in China and it, you know, may not, but it has this charm that makes it so enduring today. So that was a really, really huge thing. The other thing was, is that the studio system was totally different. So now what they, what studios tend to do now, first of all, the studios all been bought up basically by companies that don't have much to do with movies. So they're, you know, they're basically massive conglomerates and what they want now is tentpole movies. So it's just like one, it used to be one big movie and it could act as a tent over all these media movies. It doesn't really work like that anymore. What they want now is just lots of big movies and movies that don't cost anything to make. So instead of having all these mid-range movies, which is what we have, which was often what we think of with 80s movies. So things like the teen movies, things like the rom-coms, um, what you get now are just these huge, big blockbusters and then tiny indie films. Um, and I have nothing against tiny indie films, but they're often hard to access for a lot of people until streaming came along. And obviously streaming has changed things again since I wrote my book. Um, and it's how a lot of entertainment now has shifted to TV and streaming, which is a really different experience from going to the cinema, I think. Um, so those are some of just the huge factors that have really changed. Yeah. And you mentioned streaming and it seems like, you know, so your book is from 2015 and it's and, and mm-hmm. a few things have happened. One, streaming is a huge thing. And then the other thing is, you know, the sort of the, I guess, Disney takeover of the worlds, you know, where... Yes. Now they seem to own, you know, to your point about the Marvel Studios, now they own Marvel and Fox and a lot of these studios that are cranking out these big. So would you say that it's worse or is that maybe that's too uh, pejorative? It's it's strange. I think for a while it was definitely worse. And 
But I've seen things since that give me more hope. I mean, I really love that movie Booksmart that came out last mm, year. To right. me, that had a kind of 80s teen charm. Um, what, I, what I don't think we get so much are those big blockbusters that aren't just about explosions. So like, one of my absolute favorite movies is Ghostbusters. And obviously sure. Ghostbusters is very special effectsy, but it's really, really script-driven. It's a very script-driven movie. You know, it's made by the guys, made by Harold Ramis, who wrote it, and Ivan Reitman, and it's, you know, Saturday Night Live feel to it. Um, you don't get that so much with movies. I know people love things like Guardians of the Galaxy and things like that, but they don't have a script sort of bottom line to it. It's still driven by the special effects. Also, you're making that point about streaming being a different experience. And I think maybe you touch upon this in your book that, you know, we, we keep hearing this phrase so much now it's become, you know, overused. It's trite that we're in a golden age of television which is fine. And we do have some great writing on TVs. They're able to, on TV, they're able to do things that they can't do in cinema. You know, have these long sweeping story arcs over many episodes, which is great. And many of them are very good, but yeah, it doesn't have that uh, communal experience uh, that we had in the eighties where you'd have one blockbuster for the summer, like a Ghostbusters and everybody's talking about it. I can be in my home now. And I don't, my wife could be watching something else. My daughter's something else. And yeah. at the kitchen table, we're not talking about our, you know, pop culture anymore. No. And also when you're watching at home, you're off, often double, double screening. I can never even say that probably double screening. So, you know, you've got breaking bad on the TV and you're looking through Twitter on your mm. phone and, right. and it's not quite that same intense experience. You know, Judd Apatow has written a lot about how his most memorable cinematic experience was queuing up to, oh, sorry, that's, that's me being English there, oh. lining <laughs> to see Ghostbusters the weekend it opened and the feeling of going to the cinema in right. the middle of the day when it first opened and everyone's excitement about that. And I think we people, the kids don't really get that anymore. I mean, I remember when I went to see uh, Batman. Uh, when that first opened and that was hugely exciting. I like the cinema was packed out. I went to like a three o'clock show with my dad. You know, I'd never seen anything like this on a big screen, everyone gasping together. I mean, I don't want to sound like some old crotchety person (laughs) in my rocking chair, but I will never forget that experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a, I remember the, you know, the first time I saw get out, it's right after one of my kids, you know, some of my kids were born um, was just on my sofa in my living room with my husband. And okay. I remember that, but it wasn't, it's not quite the same experience of going to the cinema and experiencing this all collectively. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, Batman, the, the, the marketing, if you remember, they had that marketing that teased it for months in advance. I mean, you just saw a bat symbol someplace and you weren't sure what was happening. Warner brothers got scared because folks were so concerned it was going to be campy because Tim Burton was directing it and Michael Keaton was the star. So they rushed out a trailer that has no music, but the, all of this built into so much, this excitement um, that we don't have that anymore. Dang it. I want that back. I know. I know that real big hit. Cause now it's just, we have this, sorry, that's my dog. You can probably hear that. Very excited about the eighties. Yeah. Very excited. This overglut of big blockbusters. Everything is a massive blockbuster. It's it's because we don't have, I mean, you know, even something smaller like lethal weapon, like that could be a smaller thing next to Batman. We don't have the kind of mid range stuff so much anymore. And certainly not the kind of mid range comedies and rom-coms we used to have. And you bring up uh, Judd Apatow. And one of the Mm -hmm. things that, uh, you go over in your book, as I mentioned, uh, in uh, Life Moves Pretty Fast, Lessons We Learned from 80s Movies, is how uh, about men, how to be a man. And you, you mm-hmm. talk at length about uh, Ghostbusters, but but before that, you talk about Top Gun and a number of other films. Yeah. And, and you juxtapose the, the representation of men in films in the 80s as compared to Judd Apatow films, yeah. some of them. And uh, you theorize why um, the 80s may be responsible for 
the representation of men we have in film today. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, in the eighties, like you know, I don't want to just keep going on about Ghostbusters, but it's always such a great, great. fruitful source of examples. Um, you know, the plot line there with Bill Murray is that he's basically made to stop being a bit of a dick next mm-hmm. to Sigourney Weaver. Like Sigourney Weaver helps him grow up. And this is a very different presentation of men from what we had, certainly like in the 40s with Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant, but sure. in the 70s when you see these kind of gruff, masculine men, like you know, Al Pacino, yep. uh, Dustin Hoffman. And suddenly we're getting these these overgrown, doughy man boys, basically, mm-hmm. in the form of, right. of some, a lot of these comedians and in the 80s. And that has so influenced you know, how men are presented in movies today. I mean, Judd Apatow, all he makes are movies about women teaching men how to grow up. Um, obviously, that's not entirely true of the 80s. The 80s also had enormous amount of machismo, you know, from Arnold Schwarzenegger to, you know, Tom Cruise. Um, although it's funny to think of Tom Cruise as so machismo, but certainly in, in Top Gun, he is. And that kind of homoeroticism of male friendship was a real thing that kind of started in the 80s. Um, and that still exists, this idea of men as the protagonists of the relationships of the film and the women exist to help them grow, basically. But in, in part, if I, unless I'm misremembering, uh, you made a distinction in the sense that the men at least, including in Ghostbusters, were adults. They seemed to do oh, adult yes. things and were interested in maturing. Whereas now we have, you know, the characters are frozen. They don't want to grow up. They want to play video games for the rest of their lives or, or whatever. Yes, yes. Sorry, I should have made yeah. that clear. I mean, no. Bill Murray wants to grow up. It's not yeah. this kind of women nagging men to grow up, which is what we see mm. a lot now, particularly in Judd Apatow films. Um, and it's men who act, who also distinctively act like men. They're not sitting around just acting like, you know, overgrown 19-year-olds, basically. Right. Um, as silly as the Ghostbusters are, they're obviously grown-ups who are able to go to a bank and sort out, you know, payments on the firehouse. They're right. not like the guys in Knocked Up who are just squatting in a house and smoking weed <laughs> all day. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, I had to, we, we uh, spoke to somebody a few weeks ago um, about uh, some of the problematic films in the 1980s. And yeah. although he didn't write about Ghostbusters, he theorized, I bet if I looked at Ghostbusters, just like you point out in your book, it would be deemed sexist because of, uh, in particular, how Bill Murray's character behaves. And he said, well, here's a nice, we immediately rejected that because we love Ghostbusters. <laughs> We're like, no, that can't be. Um, but uh, the test he gave was he said, uh, you know, if, if, Bill Murray's character, Peter Venkman, were according someone in your family. What would you make of him? You know, and I think, oh yeah, I guess the way he approaches her, I, that, I wouldn't feel comfortable. Well, but- I don't know. I don't think like I. I don't see Venkman as being so bad with Dana. To be honest, mm-hmm. I think Venkman is bad at the beginning of the movie when he's literally giving electric shocks to that poor, <laughs> <laughs> poor kid. You can keep the like- five bucks. Exactly. And trying to seduce this hot 19 year old girl. I mean, <laughs> that's Venkman at his worst. Like with Dana, he's just kind of a bit ridiculous. And I interviewed Ivan Reitman for the book. And there's that great line that Sigourney Weaver says when Venkman's like wandering around her apartment and like fiddling with the piano. And, being mm-hmm. and she goes, you are so odd. And it just like <laughs> punctures this kind of, you know, you know, magical vision that we all have around Mur- Bill Murray that he can behave how he wants. And it's hilarious because it's Bill Murray. It's like, yeah, he is odd. And she like shows that and she's mm. in control of the situation. I like how you pointed out too, that the other males in his life don't support his misbehavior. Oh so- yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's also not that dynamic that we get in a lot of comedies now of like the male friends resenting the, the protagonist growing up, you know, resenting right. girlfriend coming into the group. I mean, that is such a common trope now in modern comedies. In this, you know, the, uh, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, they love Dana. 
and they want Nightwing to stop stop behaving so weirdly. Um, And in Ghostbusters 2, she's not great. I don't even, it's like very late 80s at that point, but it's not a great film, but I still stand by Ghostbusters 2. They are sad that he and Dana didn't work and they entirely blame Venkman for it. Right. And they're protective of her when she asks for them to uh, maintain her privacy when they're Exactly. And to be gentle with her baby. And like, they are, they are a nice group. <laughs> now, this is just anecdotal because I, I'm not a journalist like yourself and I, I don't do a lot of, I do enough research. <laughs> I do what allows me to do. Um, but it, it seems to me that another th- thing that maybe why f- men are represented differently, and I think men are different now, no. uh, is because of the 80s in a different way. Because we're the first generation that had, I believe has the technology to continue our mm. childhoods indefinitely. Yes. You know, watch the movies we loved, have easy access to the music, et cetera. Have, even download the posters we had on our bedroom if we wanted to, you know, whereas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's for sure. Um, and what's kind of weird I find is that our children also slightly continue our childhoods. I mean, mm. when I was writing my book, I interviewed loads of teenagers and sort of 11 year olds. And I was amazed at how they all love, you know, the breakfast club, back to the future, Indiana Jones. You know, right. when I was a kid, I was definitely not into Beach Blanket Babylon or whatever it seems to be my parents are watching. I was not into Frankie and Annette. Um, and I wasn't really listening to the Beatles and all that. But like kids say they, they still listen to like Michael Jackson and stuff. Like the, the pop culture of the 80s is still so much in the atmosphere that it's easy right. to forget in your 40s that, you know, time has moved on slightly. Right. Um, so I think that is really true that we can all continue our, our youth forever. You're right. I, keep, I, I I take credit often for introducing my daughters to 80s films. We just watched uh, Karate Kid and 1 and 2. Oh, uh, a couple good. of weeks ago, we watched Ghostbusters 1. My nine-year-old was afraid. And then she <laughs> watched 2 and the 2016, the Paul Feig one. She loved them mm. all. Um, mm. We just watched Bill and Ted yesterday. I think Bill and Ted 2 might be tonight. But you're right. If they didn't like them, they just wouldn't like them. But they, they happened like to them. and you know, share them with their friends and so on. I mean, that's why I think 80s movies are so underrated. I mean, these movies really endure. Like, you know, if I watch teen movies from the 50s, 60s, I can guarantee you they'd probably be pretty junky. (laughs) There'd be one or two exceptions, but you know, they are so divorced from how, from any kind of world that I would recognize, even though it's only like 20 years before I was born. And 80s films, it's just not true. I mean, every kid I know has seen you know, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, all that stuff. Bill and Ted. I mean, this is still a very current thing. I'm yep. glad you mentioned Bill and Ted. I think my career peaked this week. So I was oh. asked to write the liner notes for the new edition of the Blu-ray of Bill and Ted. No way! Thought, That's it. I'm That's retired That's amazing. Now. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. Very I was I was so thrilled. I was like, I can just write for 1,500 words about how much I love Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan. That's amazing. Yeah. That was so- uh, and, and also in your book, so the, the flip side of this, I suppose, or, or the same side of it, is your um, your chapter on, uh, well, there's a few things. Women are interesting and mm-hmm. successful women are sexy as hell. Yeah. I think the thing that struck me as, and I first saw your article about this where you sort of uh, you pulled out some excerpts from your book when writing about um, Working Girl and um, Baby Boom, yeah. was that Again, just, you know, anecdotally thinking, hmm, the 80s, and I wanted to be able to say the 80s was great for everybody. And then I was thinking, well, wait a second, we've got a lot of gratuitous nudity. I know we've got mm-hmm. some clearly women that are just put in film to be objectified. Yeah, uh, no question. But I was shocked, really shocked or surprised to see this perspective. And um, I guess, and certainly grateful and 
And my <laughs> wife confirmed some of it as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, how the 80s, maybe the last decade, right, to provide such, uh, I guess, um, you know, I don't know, many examples, I suppose, of, of women in a different light than we see them portrayed today? Yeah, I mean, what we see a lot in the 80s is a lot of women in boardrooms, a lot of really high-powered, mm. successful women. You know, take, you take a movie that is still watched today, although I would argue it hasn't really endured that well, which is Crocodile Dundee. Um, I mean, in that movie, what we often see also, I should say, and this is a perfect example, is women who are more successful than the men in the movies. And Crocodile Dundee, right. you know, she is way more successful than him, clearly. Like, she is in charge. She has all the money. She has the job. She knows her way around New York. Um, and she just sort of takes him under her wing. And he is not threatened by that at all. Like, right. that's totally fine. And same in Baby Boom, which I like a lot more than Working Girl. I know I'm basically alone in this, but I think Baby <laughs> Boom is actually a really interesting movie. Um, it's made by Nancy Myers, who I totally still worship. But if you compare Baby Boom to what Nancy Myers makes now, I think that's a really illustrative example of how examples of wealthy women have changed the movies. I mean, I still love Nancy Myers. I'm not knocking her, but you watch modern Nancy Myers movies and you don't see women who are working. You see kind of mm -hmm. women who are sort of running picturesque businesses out in mm -hmm. Santa Barbara, but in a kind of non-threatening way. Uh, what you see in, in Baby Boom is, you know, uh, the JC character played by Diane Keaton is like the boss. She's known as the tiger lady in the movie. And she is basically the boss of this bank. And, you know, people who know wall street can explain it better than me. And she's got her boyfriend, Harold Ramis, and he is not threatened by that at all. It's kind of hinted at that she's more successful than him. They both work on wall street. And the reason they eventually break up is because she adopts this baby or she inherits this baby. Like that. It's not her job that drives him away. It's, it's this baby. And that is really the reverse of what you get in, a lot of movies today. So take Bridesmaids. I really like Bridesmaids. I enjoy it. I love Paul Feig. I think he's an adorable man. Um, but that movie, which is supposed to be so woman-friendly, is about a woman whose bakery failed. So already a safely mm. feminine job. She's been humiliated. She keeps being humiliated. This cop turns up in the picture played by Chris O'Dowd. Um, and she sort of maybe gets a bit on her feet, but in no way is she successful. She's not ambitious. She doesn't have any drive. Um, she's very much lower on the power situation. And that's that's how rom-coms work now. You don't get rom-coms in which you get repeatedly women who are more successful than men. Ghostbusters, again, Dana is way more successful than Bankman. Right. And he's kind of into that. Um, working girl Melanie Griffith gets Harrison Ford by pretending to be more successful than him. I mean, I hate the ending of that movie. I agree with Susan Faludi in Backlash saying it's completely kind of anti-feminist, the ending where she's like this baby doll and he packs a lunch for her. The whole right. thing's weird. But up till then, it's kind of awesome. And Sigourney Weaver, who is humiliated in the movie, but is a powerful woman. I mean, all the people you see in that movie are kind of right. powerful women. So we've got a lot of, you know, we're living in this era now of, of reboots and remakes. Uh, in fact, including exciting news, we've got Michael Keaton, it seems, returning to the cowl. Yeah. Uh, Rick Moranis is returning to Honey, uh, I Shrunk the Kids franchise. <laughs> And I'm still holding on hope that Peter Weller may at least voice RoboCop in RoboCop Returns <laughs> if, if and when that's ever made. What are your feelings about the, considering what we talked about earlier and the sort of machine that we have now that is the film business, hopes, any hopes for them still capturing the essence of what these films once were? I think it was just such a completely different time that the idea of being able to capture that magic is really hard. And I think, you know, like you look at Paul Feig's Ghostbusters, I really wanted that to succeed. I, like I said, I like Paul Feig. I like the idea of making it all women. Um, 
But, you know, it's how movies are made now is so different. You just look at the look of that movie. It was clearly all done on stage sets where so much of the yeah. charm of Ghostbusters is done on the New York streets. And the special effects in that in the modern one are so slick. Part of what is so adorable about Ghostbusters is that they're so shonky and ridiculous mm-hmm. looking. So it'd be really hard to capture it. The one I'm interested in is Bill and Ted 3 because mm-hmm. um, that's kind of all the same guys doing it. It is, as far as I know, Ed Solomon still writing it. Yes. Um, it is Keanu and... Uh, and Alex Winter is still starring in it. I'll be interested to see if that captures it. I don't. I, I think Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I'm so thrilled Rick Moranis is coming back on the screen. I adore Rick Moranis, um, but I don't know if he can carry it off on his own. I think if the overall movie around them has changed so much, it's hard to see how one guy back in the '80s plonked in can rescue the whole film. Do you find that um, yeah, being so immersed in uh, film lore, an '80s film lore as you are? Do you just spot 80s tropes and characters everywhere? Do you see things through a lens of of 1980s f- films? I do, and I kind of see life through the lens of a 1980s film. I'm always really sad that I don't get to have a 1980s soundtrack in my life. And <laughs> most of my Spotify playlists are various 80s soundtracks, so, mo- mm-hmm. so songs from all the different 80s movies that I just kind of put into different mood groups, and then I play however, however I'm feeling. Um, I find that... Um, the In Time song, the Robbie Rob song from Bill and Ted, the, amazing, the allegedly amazing song that Bill and right. Ted write that saves the planet. That's a really great song to walk mm. home to. Um, so things like that, I get disappointed with. And what I, but what I love is spotting '80s actors in other stuff. So I'm always mm. excited to spot Bonnie Bedelia in other stuff. She plays Bruce Willis's wife in Die Hard, for example. Sure. Um, I was completely obsessed with always spotting the actor whose name just slipped my mind. That's terrible. Um, who's the headmaster? in Breakfast Club and the uh, police sergeant in Die Hard. Um, I used to see him popping up in loads and sadly he died a few years ago Mm. because I really wanted to interview him. So all that I get very excited by. So, you know, usually we ask our guests if I can remember to do this, whether the 1980s was the best for something, but I think we've already established it. I guess I would ask you if the 1980s was the best decade for a film, I guess that's a really broad way of putting it. But Definitely the best decade for movies. I would also argue in a lot of ways the best decade for music videos, for soundtracks, for, for songs even. I would I mean, I, I fully support 80s, 80s songs, 80s pop music, but, but far and away it's the best decade for movies. It's just got everything. It perfected every genre. And I honestly don't think as many movies have endured at, from any single decade as they have from the 80s. Very good. Thanks so much for your time, Hadley. We appreciate it. Thank you, Will. I really enjoyed it.